Um, I, I, I don't know if you have ever had that experience or an experience recently where um, you realize that you need to take responsibility for something and you have to face God and face others perhaps with that and if I could come up with a title, I haven't really uh, this morning, but it would be something like experience, or sorry, um, taking responsibility and facing God. Um, one of uh, my, uh, I've been in mourning over the weekend, I suppose to a certain degree. Um, I use the term loosely, but one of my sporting heroes, one of my sporting icons, passed away on Friday by the name of Shane Warne. You might have heard um, Shane Warne, one of the cricketing greats. I'm a big cricket fan. Um, but, uh, and, and all these things were written about Shane Warne. There were all these documentaries uh, put together by Sky and BBC and people like that. But Shane Warne wasn't perfect. Um, in 1994, in a, a one-day cricket match against Sri Lanka before the game, um, Shane Warne and another cricketer took a bet from a bookmaker. Didn't seem that, that big. It was to do with the pitch and the weather and stuff like that. I remember Shane Warne talking about that a little bit later on in his life and saying that there are times where you fall into this situation where you get things wrong. But he said... You, get, you need to get to the point where you stand up, where you take responsibility for that and face the consequences of it. Essentially, it was what Shane Warren was saying. I have a, a moment like that in my life uh, when I was much younger. It's not a big, massive thing, but hopefully it'll, uh, it'll make sense. Uh, I, I live, or I, I, I own a house in Green Island. Used to live there with uh, a couple of mates many, many years ago. By the way, that Green Island house uh, is, um, you know, if anybody wants to buy it, uh, I am looking to sell at some stage. So talk to me after. That's, this is probably not the, the, the moment to talk about that. Um, but we used to live in this Green Island house there was myself and a couple of mates um, and I back in the day and maybe Cherith will tell you that I'm still like that but back in the day I kind of used to, I had a sort of easy come easy go attitude to, to dishes um, cleaning um, leaving just things um, lying around uh, I'm a friend who wasn't like that, got really angry at me like one time, really, really frustrated and like genuinely would not speak to me for ages. And so we were going to this worship gig. Um, it was a, a worship band, you might remember, Third Day. They were absolutely banging. The gig was in the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Um, and, and it was just him and I, and we were in the queue, and a queue of, it felt like hundreds of people. And he, he wouldn't speak to me. And it was really, really awkward. I remember standing there thinking, like, this is so awkward. These are two mates here. Um, and I just had this, like, game-changer moment uh, where I felt God saying to me, he didn't speak to me in a voice, but I, I just felt him saying to me, uh, Andy, you need to stand up here, lad, take responsibility, and, and just apologize to him. And so, as awkward as it was, I did. I did do that. 
said to him, really sorry, mate, I've been leaving stuff lying around. I've been really careless with all of that sort of stuff. I'll do my very best to, to do better next time. Um, and it was, it was just like this, like a, a click of a finger. Uh, he, it was brilliant. It was as if we had been sort of reconciled or our friendship had been reestablished in a moment. But I felt not just that I was taking responsibility and standing up in front of my friend and repenting. I kind of felt that he was almost like a God representative as I stood there. Um, I felt that I was almost standing up and facing God in that moment, if that makes sense. I don't know if you've experienced that before. Um, our text today is Genesis 32 and 33. Now, it's a long text, but if you can bring it up on your phones and, 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 and Bibles, um, I'm going to read through bits and pieces as we go along. Basically, I have been challenged to preach this for the last couple of weeks. Um, and I, I didn't really want to. It's one of those um, where I, I didn't really want to, to take this text uh, and to preach it. But the Lord kept making me come back to it in, in preparation and just enforcing that upon me. So I said, OK, we'll, we'll look at this text. It's a really long text. And what I've done and I'm sorry I don't have the PowerPoint, what I've done is I've created five, I've called it a Jacob process, this is about Jacob, and I've created five steps that I think Jacob went through where he took responsibility finally and he faced God or he came to God face to face and there are five processes that he takes and hopefully we, you and I, can maybe learn some stuff about that if this is something that you're struggling with. I've been challenged about this stuff recently, and hopefully all of us can learn from it. So we'll look at chapter 32, okay? And I want to read just with you there uh, the first eight verses, okay? So we'll read together. Genesis 32, verses 1 to 8. As Jacob and his household started on their way again, angels of God came to meet him. When Jacob saw them, he exclaimed, this is God's camp, so he named the place Mahanaim. Jacob now sent messengers to his brother Esau in Edom, the land of Seir. He told them, give this message to my master Esau. Humble greetings from your servant Jacob. I have been living with Uncle Laban until recently, and now I own oxen, donkeys, sheep, goats, servants, both men and women. I have sent these messengers to inform you of my coming, hoping that you will be friendly to us. The messengers returned with the news Esau was on his way to meet Jacob with an army of 400 men. Jacob was terrified at the news. He divided his household along with the flocks, herds, and camels into two camps. He thought to himself, if Esau attacks one group, perhaps the other can escape. Point one of five. Hopefully these are five easy to remember points and processes that Jacob go through or goes through, sorry, that we might have to go through in a particular circumstance. Point number one, we need to do our very best to try and avoid a self-inflicted type of suffering. 
Um, Jacob's life thus far is crazy. And I don't have time to go back through all the different passages, Genesis 25 onwards, to take us exactly there. But this is a man who comes out as a heel grabber, who struggles with his brother. There is this sort of underlying hostility right from the very beginning. Steals firstborn rights from Esau. Cheats, deceives father into getting father's blessing. In fact, John Brew, uh, when he was preaching last week uh, on Genesis 11, but he he sort of moved through uh, a little bit later on in Genesis. If I remember right uh, or correctly, he called uh, Jacob a bit of a chancer, I think was what he said. He's certainly that. Maybe a little bit more than that. God then, of course, sometimes works in ironies, and that happens through Laban, his uncle, who tricks Jacob, I suppose, into seven years of extra work. Okay, so we think maybe Jacob will learn his lesson. But then a little bit later on, he deceives again, this time his uncle Laban, by ensuring through trickery and through a couple of other things that, that, that Laban's uh, flocks, herds, etc. will diminish a little bit and that Jacob will become prosperous, which is entire, uh, what he does. There's also an issue with uh, Rachel and with Leah and then with the servant girls. Jacob then finds himself pursued by his uncle Laban. And it's only an intervention from God, I believe, that stops his uncle from harming him in some way. God speaks to Laban and says, you're not to speak good or bad to Jacob, basically. You're not to bring this all in front of him in, in, in the way that you're probably going to. And now he comes to a stage in his life where he realizes it is inevitable that he is going to meet his brother Esau, who he messed about earlier on in life. Talk about a a type of self-inflicted suffering. And yet, when we read the Old Testament, when we read through the lives of people like Noah and Abraham and David and Solomon, some of the great patriarchs, some of the great kings of Old Testament history, what we see is their lives are laid bare for us. Everything is stripped away. When we read through what happens in their lives and what we realize is that these great people of the Bible are full of these self-inflicted sins, actions, words. And that actually gives me a little bit of hope to know that someone like David, who is great, he's a great man. And yet he's a deceiver, adulterer, murderer, and all of these different things. And yet we know that Jesus Christ himself will come through these lines, these lineages. 
So instead of putting ourselves in these situations, these self-inflicted suffering situations, if I can call them these, I think that what we need to do is we need to recognize the way that God works, which is brilliant. I heard someone say this. I'll say it to you um, because I think it's, it's great. They said that God always works out his outcomes through humans who are trying to work out their own. Let me re, re, uh, say that again. God always works out his outcomes through humans who are trying to work out their own outcomes at the same time. And we don't know exactly how that works. Right at the beginning of Jacob's situation, Rebecca is told by God that the older will serve the younger. Jacob is blessed at birth, and yet all the way through, what does he try to do? He tries to do what we do. He tries to determine his own blessings or determine what happens to him by his own plans, his own will, his own schemes. And yet, all the way along, it is God's, I call it his decretive will. That is where God decrees that something is going to be the case. And inevitably, it is the case. There is nothing in this world that can change those decretive plans or that decretive will of God. However much Jacob involves himself in self-inflicted suffering... God's decretive will happens every time. And I understand Jacob's fear here. I think it's uh, Genesis 27, 42, where Rebecca actually says to Jacob, and I, I understand this fear completely, um, says to Jacob, this is my tran- uh, the best translation for me, that Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Your brother is consoling himself with that thought. Of course he's going to fear Esau's resentment. But what happens if you look at the text that we've just read there? Verses 7 to 8. Is it because he's fearful? The self-inflicted suffering continues. The not trusting in God's promises for him continues. Look at those verses 7 and 8. You know, Jacob's trying to determine um, a a way where... uh, You know, if he divides everything that he has, this division of family will mean that at least not everything will be lost, I suppose. And what I'm trying to get across is that this self-inflicted suffering that Jacob, that is in his life, that it means to try and make up your own wills and your own schemes and your own planning without acknowledging that God keeps his promises, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say there. God, through all this, remains faithful and commits himself to Jacob. Um, Let me just read Deuteronomy 7, 9 before I move on. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments To a thousand generations. God always commits himself. To those who love him. Even when we try. To 
get away with our own plans and our own will and our own schemes. We need to try and avoid self-inflicted suffering. Number two, and we're basing this on verses 9 to 12, we must recognize that we are unworthy of his grace. And you sort of wonder all of these events that have happened in Jacob's life. You, you wonder actually as we come to verse 9, which is a prayer, are all of these events actually in a sense sort of preempting or bringing about that prayer? It is my belief that sometimes you and I will go through challenges and moments and situations um, that are entirely uncomfortable. And one of the reasons why we actually go through those things is so we get out of our own head and wallowing and we actually turn to him in prayer about the stuff that's actually going on. R.T. Kendall, who's one of my mum and dad's favorite sort of theologians, speakers, writers, etc., calls it God bringing you an Esau. I love that, God bringing you an Esau in your life. God getting your attention by bringing this challenge before you, whatever it is. A lot of people think it's the wrestle, Jacob's wrestle with God, that's a game changer. But let's read verses 9 to 12, because this prayer is brilliant, in my opinion. This is a game changer prayer moment, because he finally recognizes the idea that actually he's completely unworthy of the mercy of God. Let's read 9 to 12 together there. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my grandfather, Abraham and my father Isaac, O Lord, you told me to return to my land and to my relatives, and you promised to treat me kindly. I am not worthy of all the faithfulness and unfailing love you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home, I own nothing except a walking stick, and now my household fills two camps. Oh, Lord, please rescue me from my brother Esau. I am afraid he's coming to kill me along with my wives and children. But you promised to treat me kindly and to multiply my descendants until they become as numerous as the sands along the seashore, too many to count. Do you know what I love about this prayer? that I need to learn from. There's no blaming of other people. Not this time. Um, this is a prayer of desperation. This is a prayer of utter burden. This is a prayer that reflects in Jacob a changing heart. A heart confessing things that reflects a changing heart. And he prays honestly. Lord, you told me things would go well. And you've blessed me with all of these different things that I have. And then it changes. And it, there is a genuine specific need here. I am afraid that Esau is going to come and kill me and my family. It's so specific. And then it, he, he moves out of that prayer and he basically says... And acknowledges, but God, you are a God who keeps your promises. And then that sort of rhetorical question, exclamation mark type phrase where you, you type loads of those. Remember, remember, question mark, remember those promises you made to me, Lord. I think you and I need to remember this sort of prayer and acknowledge this sort of prayer. 
Because we have absolutely no idea what will happen in each of these circumstances that are personal to you. We need to come to the Lord and actually pray about the things that he's bringing in front of us. Perhaps with that tone of desperation and burden, but acknowledgement that he is and does. He is faithful and he faithfully keeps his promises. We must recognize, number two, that we are unworthy of his grace. Number three, we must be prepared to repent and make things completely right to seek reconciliation. Verses 13 to 23, uh, you've got that in front of you there. Um, it's, it's a list, essentially. It's quite technical. There's a list of these gifts that he brings there. 220 goats, 220 sheep, 30 milk camels and colts and things like this. And I always, when I read this passage, I, I, I see Jacob, um, I'm sorry if this sounds weird to you, I see Jacob sitting beside Deborah Maiden and uh, Peter Jones and, and people, and you know the dragon's den seats. And I almost see Esau standing up in front, uh, so standing in front of, of the, the dragons. And it's almost as if Jacob is saying, okay, I'm going to give you Esau uh, whatever, 70,000 uh, for 0% of your, um, of your business, basically. What he is providing for his brother is so utterly generous. It is more than enough to get Esau. He hasn't seen Esau for ages. He doesn't know what Esau's situation is wealth-wise. But what he provides for him or puts in front of Esau is so generous, in fact, that it would be more than enough for Esau to, to, to I don't know, to start some big uh, sort of herding flock business or whatever it is. And actually, this is a point that I want to make. I was reading some Bible commentators and scholars and historians so I don't know if you know this. This is something that I, I, rec I realized as I went through. And what these guys were saying was that this gift that is given to Esau, that is provided for Esau by Jacob, is actually of a, of a, a, a big enough amount of wealth, a magnitude, that the birthright debt, I suppose, that he owed would be completely erased. Now, I think that's really important. If these commentators and scholars are correct in saying this, that this is of such a, this gift is of such magnitude that the birthright debt from the beginning has been completely erased. Well, that suggests to me that not only do we need to repent of something that we've done, but Jacob actually tries to make it right technically. He goes a whole hog and tries to make things right technically. And yes, I suppose that at, at the same stage, there's still that part of Jacob that is planning this, this sort of political defense strategy, I suppose you'd call it, where he's thinking to himself, okay, so perhaps if I bring him the gift, if I have all these animals, these, these milk camels and sheep and goats and ewes and things, uh, perhaps if I send these 
Then Esau and his 400 men, and we don't know exactly what that looks like. Is this a military lineup that he's, he's brought with him? Perhaps they won't attack the animals, and perhaps they'll maybe be taken aback by this and will be okay. So he's still planning. He's still strategizing. He's still not quite trusting in God's promises for him. But Jacob desires that his brother look favorably upon him. To use biblical language, that his brother turn his face towards him. You and I, I think, need to follow that example of almost like a complete repentance. Learning from our sin, learning from the wrong things that we have done, and you might have it in your mind or heart over the last couple of weeks, I've said something to someone or I've I've done a particular action, and I now recognize and acknowledge that there's no one else to blame for that thing that I said or that action that I've done. Perhaps we need to acknowledge that sin, that betrayal or that deceit or whatever it is, and go and put it right, whatever that means, completely. Like those three boys that came in the Karagrammer one year, young offenders. And I was really humbled by it, just seeing these guys who had, who had committed these crimes. Some of them weren't great, in fairness. Um... And yet you could tell genuinely from their hearts that they were trying to make things right. These sort of mediation things and community service things. They were trying to make things right to the best of their ability. I was humbled by that, you know. Um, And a guy, um, just a really interesting guy um, who is on. You'll know him if you watch a lot of YouTube. I I watch a lot of his videos. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says. Uh, A guy, Jordan Peterson, he's a a clinical psychologist turned social, cultural, religious commentator, I suppose uh, you would (laughs) say. Um, I don't agree with everything. but, But one thing Jordan Peterson does say is that In a church, if we're sitting in a church together, you and I, the likelihood of each of us doing something that is unethically or immorally wrong in our lives is 100%. So basically what he's saying is there is no hiding for any one of us in that sort of circumstance. And yet he says this, to not have the opportunity to take responsibility And face the consequences, whatever it is. If people were not able to do that, we would essentially be doomed. He claims that that is a part of humanity. That we need to be able to take responsibility, like Jacob, and deal with something. Make it right. I thought it was really interesting that Jordan Peterson says something there. So let's repent and make things right. Number four, coming to the last two here. We must be prepared to cling on to him. Verses 24 through 31 there. And I'll read this through. This is what everybody remembers. Jacob was left all alone in the camp and a man came and wrestled with him until dawn. When the man saw that he couldn't win the match, he struck Jacob's hip and knocked it out of joint at the socket. Then the man said, let me go for it's dawn. But Jacob uh, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name, the man said, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob. It's now Israel, because you have struggled with both God and men and have won. 
What is your name? Jacob asked him. Why do you ask? The man blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, face of God, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun rose as he left, and he was limping because of his hip. I think people focus on this wrestle. I think they argue too much. I've, I've read so many things that argue about whether this is a God who Jacob faces or an angel who Jacob faces. And this isn't a unique situation. In the Old Testament, we see plenty of theophanies where, where perhaps God speaks to someone in, in, in human form or in a recognizable form. We have a number of situations where angels uh, are in human form or, or, or in a form that is recognizable. It's, this is not unique. But the struggle, the wrestle, is so interesting to read. It's as if Jacob has been placed into this, and I know we don't read much about the wrestle, but this sort of here and now, not spiritual, but physical in in time and space situation where he literally is leapt upon, perhaps. We don't want to speculate too much by this this man in the dark, uh, the family. He he has sent away the family, so, so he's on his own. This is a real life, not metaphorical. I don't take that. I don't accept people that say it is. It is not a metaphorical narrative of some sort. This is a real life. Man leaps on Jacob and they wrestle moment. Talk about life lessons. Talk about life lessons. Talk about lessons and points and learning. I don't know how Jacob's feeling during this wrestle. There isn't much said about it. I don't know if he feels far from God after his prayer in verses 9 to 12, or maybe he feels a little bit happier. And I assume that this man, God, an angel, would pretty easily be able to put out the hip or the the, the thigh joint area. But I believe that God needs Jacob to learn the most important lesson. That if you're going to receive blessing, you must be prepared to cling on. See, clinging for me means to show real faith in a situation. And Jacob has no alternative but to show that real faith. See, real faith is active, isn't it? It's not a passive thing. And Jacob is driven by this, presumably, this feeling of being apart from the blessing of God. And that shows us his heart. Hosea, in his writing, it explains that Jacob wept and begged for God's favor. And for me, that's what it means to cling on. To weep and beg for God's favor, for God's blessing. Jacob needs to learn this divine toughness. He's unprepared for it, and he's forced to step up. And he walks away with this lifelong, permanent limp. 
We need to learn that sometimes you really just have to cling on. Sometimes you will receive and I will receive some sort of uh, uncomfortable uh, impediment would be the word that we would use, whether it be psychological, physical, spiritual, a limp of some sort. But it is in this instance a mark of God's blessing. And Jacob needs to feel that mark of God's blessing. And he does feel it. And I have come to realize that sometimes a life with challenges is better than one without. I think I've come to, to, to realize that in, in, in dealing with this passage. Maybe it's good for us to have that limp. Maybe it's good for us to know that we have to cling on. Last but not least, number five, we need to trust that he's always in control. And we look at chapter 33 for this, end of 32 and 33. All the way through, Jacob has been planning, strategizing. If I do this, then this will happen. If I take this course of action, then this will be the outcome of that course of action. And yet, the fact that he meets God face to face does not take away Esau from the situation. Sure, it doesn't. It doesn't matter that he's had this amazing wrestle with God. He is still going to meet Esau. And it still may well be challenging and difficult. But Jacob, when you look at 33 there, Jacob saw Esau coming with 400 men. Jacob arranged his family. Got it ready, verse 4. Look at verse 4. Then Esau ran to meet him, embraced him affectionately and kissed him. And both of them were in tears. It's like a prodigal son type thing, isn't it? All of the planning, all of the prep. And Jacob would never have suspected that his brother would have that gentle, tender affection for him. And do you know what I've learned from that? That there's this combination of God's providence in his own time, because he doesn't work on ours. God's providence in his own time. And then the outworkings of our actual time. And somehow they have combined to make Esau just not angry anymore. It's not angry anymore. That's incredible. And Esau comes in front of Jacob. And I would imagine if I'm Esau, last time I knew Jacob, Jacob was probably this self-righteous, sort of spoilt child who was into deceiving and supplanting and all of these things. And he meets Jacob and he realizes that Jacob is all grown up. And Jacob has grown up. Because Jacob has gone through all of those processes that I've been mentioning today. Jacob has, although he's been involved in self-inflicted suffering, he's trying to avoid that more and more. 
Jacob has come in prayer to recognize that he is unworthy of, of, of God's grace and God's mercy. Jacob has repented and made things right. And Jacob has clung on for dear life to God. And he wants to make complete amends to his brother. And remember I told you about my friend when I said sorry to him? I had to apologize to my friend. I felt I was apologizing to God as well. Well, I, I, I get this sense here. I don't know if you agree with me here. But I almost feel as if when Jacob stands before Esau, Esau is the representative of God in this circumstance. And so as Jacob apologizes and repents and tries to make things right, it's almost as if he is hoping that God will turn his face towards him. That he is the representative of God there. But you know what? Esau needs nothing. He has enough. And these brothers are reconciled. We must trust number five, that God is always in control. Friends, um, if you're listening online or watching online or here and, and you, you don't know, you, you haven't made that commitment to, 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 to Jesus Christ, I want to point this out. Thousands of years later, um, or hundreds and hundreds of years later, actually, um, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Jesus Christ would kneel in prayer. He would pray a prayer something like this, Lord, take this cup from me. Take this suffering from me, yet not my will but yours. He was agonizing. The Gospels tell us that he sweated something like droplets of blood. We know that medically as a term hematidrosis. He wrestled with his father in that garden, I'm, I'm sure of it. His full humanity in that moment, the, 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 the agony, because he knew what was to come. But he knew, he knew that this agony had to come for our good. For us. And you know what? He did prevail. And he did win. And he wouldn't let go of his mission. So that you and I could cling on to him for dear life. He agonized for us. Nicky read Acts 4.12 earlier on. And I want to say this to finish. I want you to recognize this truth. Peter and John, when they're defending in the Sanhedrin, Peter says, for there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. Let us learn from the Jacob processes this morning. Let us utilize these processes in our own lives. Amen, and may God bless these words to each of us this morning.